Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You dream of finding your ideal pet and giving them a good life. Purina wants that for you, too. Their pet finder platform matches animals with the right owners, and their pet foods offer excellent nutrition. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 1st. Today, the Russian bounty on U.S. troops, the coronavirus mutation, and a year of ups and downs for the fireworks industry. The stunning information here is that Russia, which of course fought its own war in Afghanistan in the 80s, has been offering bounties to Taliban-linked militants to kill U.S. troops and coalition forces in Afghanistan. Ellen Nakashima covers intelligence and national security for The Post. And she says that this shocking news comes at a pretty delicate moment in America's war in Afghanistan part because the U.S. and the Taliban signed a peace deal in February. And in fact, some Russian officials are accusing the United States of fabricating the story to undermine the deal and justify and prolong the U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan. And when you say bounties, does that basically mean that Russians were essentially telling Taliban militants like, hey, we will give you X amount of money for every American troop you kill on the ground? We don't know how much the bounties were, but yes, our, our information is that they were offering payments to the militants to target and kill coalition members. And, and just to be clear, does the U.S. intelligence community believe that these bounties actually resulted in the deaths of U.S. soldiers? Yeah, our information is that, yes, the payment of bounties has led, they believe, to the killings of perhaps at least three Marines in 2019 who were killed by a roadside bombing near Bagram Airfield. So how did this information come to light for the intelligence community? And when did it become apparent that this was happening? So White House officials were first informed in early 2019 of intelligence reports coming up from the military that Russia was offering bounties to these Taliban-linked militants to kill coalition forces in Afghanistan. But at the time, the information was seen as sketchy and in need of additional confirmation. And so the intelligence sort of simmered along until there was a series of special operations raids this past winter on the homes of Afghan businessmen who were suspected of being part of this informal sort of money transfer system in in Afghanistan called Hawalas. And large amounts of cash were recovered. The New York Times reported that half a million dollars was recovered from the home of one businessman suspected of being part of this ring of middlemen operating between the Russian military intelligence and Taliban-linked militants. 
They also reported that the government, U.S. government, intercepted electronic data showing these large financial transfers from a bank account controlled by the Russians to a Taliban-linked account. And that further buttressed the information that was coming from the captured militants who were being interrogated. And I think led to higher confidence that what the militants were saying was true. And this information actually made it into the president's daily brief in February. And the PDB, as it's called, is a compilation of the most significant and credible analysis of national security information of the day. And the president gets one in written form every day for six days a week. But haven't we reported that the president doesn't actually read this brief? That's exactly right. The president famously skips the written briefing, preferring to take an oral briefing two to three times a week, sometimes fewer when he's perhaps on the road. And so... What the White House has said, the president himself has said, and the intelligence community leaders, is that he did not get briefed on this orally. But certainly it was in the written brief, and his senior aides, like the National Security Advisor, certainly get this information as well in the PDB every day, and they saw it. The National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, would have seen this information for sure, And it would have really fallen to him to brief the president on something of this significance. O'Brien actually appeared on Fox and Friends this morning. Uh, The president was not briefed because at the time uh, of the uh, of these allegations, uh, they were uncorroborated. The DOD has come out repeating that the intelligence was not seen as credible. And he also suggested that the intelligence community briefer who does the oral briefing several times a week with the president made the decision not to include this information in the president's oral briefing. In fact, the agenda for the oral briefing is set in advance in consultation with O'Brien. So it's not the intelligence community briefer's decision alone as to what to include in the oral briefing. So then has President Trump actually responded to this so far? And is it a problem that he is saying that he was not aware of reporting on these Russian bounties up until now, even though it was circling around in the highest levels of the government for the last few months? Absolutely. He seems more focused on the idea that this is a hoax, uh, that the stories are the product of fake news media saying this information came up and he should have been briefed and he said he wasn't briefed. I won't speculate on whether this intelligence is verified or not verified and I won't get ahead of the president on further actions, but I would just point out that no one... are not disputing that no this one, is not true. No one, there, there, there are dissenting opinions within the intelligence community and I can confirm with you right now that there's no consensus within the intelligence community on these allegations. The Um, administration's response here seems to be to try to undercut the validity of the intelligence by saying it is still inconclusive, its veracity and credibility is still being ascertained. But two things. One is it would not have gone into the PDB in February if it hadn't been seen as credible. And two, we know that the CIA vetted this intelligence. There was a fairly high-level restricted National Security Council meeting in late March where they discussed options to respond to 
this provocation to include sanctions and maybe a diplomatic censure. And also, after that meeting, they tasked the CIA with vetting the underlying intelligence further, the intelligence which had come up from the special operations forces. And from what we're hearing, the CIA did this and came to an assessment that the intelligence was credible. So it appears that right now President Trump doesn't have any immediate plans to go to Russia or go to President Putin and take these accusations to him and either get him to respond or have some sort of uh, action against him. Oh, no. And in fact, he said he wanted to invite Putin back to the uh, G8 summit of advanced economies. And when they have a summit later this year, and it's in the United States, if instead of calling out Russia for its transgressions and malign actions, whether it's interference in the 2016 election, he is instead seeking to bring Russia and Putin back into the you know, international community. He's sort of sending opposite signals. So what do we know about what the potential motives could be for the Russians to want to do this, to essentially pay money to have American troops killed? It's not crystal clear since they do want to see the Americans out and news like this could disrupt that process. But the Russians certainly aren't bemoaning the loss of American lives over the years. And some of it is speculation that it might be in retaliation for the U.S. killing of Russian mercenaries in eastern Syria in 2018 after those mercenaries advanced on a U.S. outpost. Still others say it might be a form of confidence-building measure to solidify a relationship with the Taliban going forward under the assumption that the Taliban will control a large swath of the country and Russia needs them to ensure stability there. Have we heard anything official from Russia or the Taliban about whether these reports are true? Moscow and the Taliban have denied the reports, but it does fit into a broader pattern of increased aggression against the West generally and the United States in particular, in which they have sought to destabilize NATO and America's alliances with Western allies. And in 2016, we saw they went so far as to try to intervene in the presidential election. So then going forward, what do you think is at stake here, both in terms of confirming whether or not these these bounties are true and, and whether or not Russia really tried to do this, and also in, in terms of how President Trump responds to this. So already there is criticism of President Trump as not being willing or able to stand up to President Putin. He, in 2018 in Helsinki, sided with uh, Putin over his own intelligence community, over their assessment on Russian interference in, in the 2016 election. And time and again, he has been seen as failing to hold a firm line and being willing to call out Russian malfeasance. And And the fear is that if this continues, Russia will be emboldened to just continue such actions and and even escalate. I mean, it is fair. It is true that the United States has, under the Trump administration, imposed stiff sanctions on Russia and has uh, sent lethal arms to Ukraine to help it in its fight against Russia. But many of these actions were taken with President Trump having to be kind of grudgingly dragged along 
and Congress has had to pass legislation that really would force the administration to be firm with sanctions. And is this a scenario where Congress might take similar action where they'll essentially say that the president is not doing enough in this situation to either punish Russia or to demand hard answers from Russia? I think certainly on the Democratic-controlled House side, yes. This is as bad as it gets. And yet the president will not confront the Russians on this score, denies being briefed, whether he is or not his administration knows. And other our allies who were... Speaker Nancy Pelosi has demanded a full House all-members briefing, and intelligence committees also want briefings this week. On the Senate, I think we're seeing some divides among Republicans, with some saying that uh, if this intelligence is found to be credible, that there needs to be a swift, strong, firm response against Russia, with some other Republicans saying, no, this intelligence is not credible, and therefore this does not merit a strong response, and the president did not need to be briefed on that. So I think you'll continue to see this debate play out for the next uh, few days at least. Ellen Nakashima is a national security reporter for The Post. So Sarah, is the novel coronavirus mutating? So the coronavirus is mutating. But that doesn't mean what you fear it might mean. You know, mutations, it sounds scary. It sounds like the X-Men. It sounds like it's going to become even more dangerous than it already is. But something that we forget is that everything mutates, all of life mutates, and viruses mutate especially quickly. And most of those mutations don't really mean anything. They're just sort of mistakes the virus makes as it makes copies of itself, and they don't change the virus's behavior at all. And I think that, you know, we're in this moment where people are really desperate for information and so hopeful that science can provide answers that sometimes you can take a tiny sentence like the virus is mutating and it gets really blown up and it can get blown out of proportion. I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science and climate reporter at The Post. So ever since the spring, scientists have noticed that this one version of the virus, a variant with a mutation in its spike protein, which is that spiky piece of the virus that sticks out from its shell in those pictures we've all seen, This mutation seems to have taken over the pandemic. You know, it first arose in Europe and North America, and now it is found all over the world. And actually, most people who are getting infected seem to be getting infected with this mutated version of the virus. And there have been this month several preliminary studies published suggesting that this version of the virus is actually better at infecting our cells because the spike protein is the tool, the molecular lockpick that the virus uses to get into human cells. And if it has a mutation, maybe that mutation is making it more effective and successful. What does this mutation actually do? 
So we're still trying to figure that out. There is this slate of studies, I think at least four experiments in labs around the world that suggest that this mutation makes the virus better at breaking into human cells and taking them over. There is not any evidence that it actually makes people sicker, but one thought is that it might increase their viral load. So basically the amount of virus in their body. And then there's this other piece of data that because of that, because the virus is more successful at breaking into cells, that there's more copies of it in an infected person's body, that it might be more transmissible, that it's actually more successful at spreading between people. And that piece of the puzzle has still, that's the most inconclusive part. That's the part that scientists are trying to figure out and are debating right now. But if that does turn out to be the case, then that might explain why this variant of the virus has become so dominant all around the world. So if this version of the virus does turn out to be more transmissible, what are the potential implications for people? I mean, so, you know, one thing that one scientist told me, which I think is is pretty apt, is that we weren't able to control the original version of the virus. If this version of the virus spreads even more quickly, it's also going to be hard to control. I think that whether or not this variant actually affects transmission doesn't change our public health response. We still have to do all the same things, wear masks, practice physical distancing, be careful about who we interact with and you know how often we are doing non-essential activities out in the world. But the thing that it does matter for is all viruses mutate and this one is mutating. And the more it spreads, the more opportunities to mutate it has. And it's really important to track these changes in the genome, both the ones that have implications for the biology and ones that are just kind of incidental because those changes allow us to understand how the virus is spreading. And so scientists say, if we understand the virus's genome and we can use that as kind of a lens on how it has spread across the world, what are the modes of transmission, what are the hotspots where you see clusters of of related viruses that probably all came from the same introduction. All of those things can help you target a better public health response. And then eventually, when it comes time to start implementing vaccines and therapeutics and antivirals, we want to make sure that the ver- variant of the virus that is spreading is responsive to those things. One concern is what happens if the virus mutates away from the vaccine. And a lot of the vaccines actually target this spike protein. And is there a significant chance that that would happen, that that the mutation would be significant enough that it would end up not being actually the thing that people are trying to find a vaccine for? So right now, there is no evidence that this mutation in the spike protein has affected the virus's response to vaccines or antibodies or any other medication that is being proposed in any way. That is a concern in the future, though. And if you think about you think about what causes evolution, right, it is pressure from the outside. Things mutate and evolve because there is some selective pressure happening on them. Right now, there are not a lot of selective pressures on the virus because we have so few tools against it. But once we start developing tools like a vaccine, then you're going to start putting pressure 
pressure on the virus to come up with ways around it. And so that's when, you know, researchers are really concerned about the virus possibly mutating in a way that allows it to evade the vaccine. And we know that happens because it happens with the flu virus every year. And this virus mutates more slowly than the flu virus does. But, you know, it's, it's still something that we need to be on the lookout for and that we need to be ready for. So how early on are we in this research? It's important to be very cautious interpreting these studies and a lot of studies that have come out because the research on cell culture, these Petri dish studies, and some of the research on transmission, it's all been published as a preprint. So, you know, normally the scientific process means you submit a paper to a journal and then it undergoes this peer review process where other experts scrutinize it and provide feedback. And then once it kind of makes it through that process, then it gets published. But In this kind of very urgent time, scientists have been posting their papers as manuscripts before they're published in a journal, which just means that it hasn't undergone that level of scrutiny yet. And so that's something to be cautious of. So it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, which is kind of the gold standard of of scientific examination and analysis. Yes, exactly. And the other thing to be cautious of also is that what happens in cell culture, what happens in a Petri dish does not necessarily represent what happens in real life. And we saw that with hydroxychloroquine, that malaria drug that had been touted as a potential therapeutic for the coronavirus. And, you know, in cell culture experiments, it seemed to be effective. But, you know, we've later realized and the FDA has found that there's not evidence that it's effective in humans and that it actually poses some huge risks. So that's one thing to be cautious of. And the other thing, the other caveat is that We see this evidence that the variant, the mutation has taken over and is kind of the dominant version of the virus now circulating. And one explanation might be that it has this mutation that gives it an advantage, an evolutionary advantage. But there are other explanations, and some of them have much more to do with what humans are doing than what the virus is doing. What do you mean by that? So, you know, one thing is that the variant first appeared in Europe. The version that was found in most patients in northern Italy, where that main um, epicenter of the European outbreak was in the early stage of the pandemic. And so there's this idea of a founder effect where if a virus gets into a susceptible population first and then kind of explodes and spreads really quickly, then it has an advantage and it's able to just take over and other versions of the virus are just, there's no way for them to get a foot in the door. And so the idea could be that this variant, this mutation, was the founder of the European outbreak. And because of the way that humans, that that public officials and policymakers and just individuals were unable to control that outbreak and how quickly it spread across Europe and then into North America and now all around the world, that it got lucky and kind of we gave it the opportunity to take over. I'm curious what the reaction has been to your reporting on this research on this potential mutation, because I think that when people hear the idea of a genetic mutation in the virus, it it sounds really scary. It sounds like something bizarre and like something that we need to be worried about. And I wonder if that's part of the challenge of like communicating about this science is that, yes, we should be concerned, but also this is not actually that abnormal and that this is pretty early on in the research process, too, and that there's a lot of nuance in trying to talk about that. Yeah, it sounds scary, but it's actually something that's very natural and very expected. And I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind as we take in all of this new research is that... 
This pandemic has really accelerated the process of science and kind of exposed it to the public eye in a way that, you know, most researchers have not dealt with before. I mean, there's this intense pressure on scientists to get information out there quickly, right? Because the pandemic is moving so quickly, but at the same time, you want information to be right. And I think that, you know, one thing to remember is that science is not this like eureka moment kind of thing. It's a process. And usually it's a process of putting a hypothesis out there and testing it and seeing if other people can reproduce it. And then, you know, they have critiques and you go back and forth and you gradually inch closer to the most accurate interpretation. And that's all happening in real time right now. Like science is unfolding before our very eyes. Sarah Kaplan writes about science for The Post. And now, one more thing. Last year, on the 4th of July, we did a story about a total panic that was happening in the fireworks industry. It's quite likely that if these tariffs go through, it would be devastating to the entire industry. This was during the height of the trade war between the U.S. and China. And the Trump administration was considering putting a tariff on fireworks. Unlike other products, fireworks companies cannot go get fireworks from, you know, Mexico or South Korea or Europe. They're really only made in China. Damien Paletta is an economics editor for The Post. The Trump administration eventually backed down, you know, because the fireworks industry made the argument that we simply can't buy these fireworks from somewhere else. It's not like we're picking Chinese uh, manufacturers over American manufacturers. There are no American manufacturers. So when the Trump administration backed down, there was this huge sigh of relief from the fireworks industry. Then the pandemic hit and then all hell broke loose. I can tell you in March... I was prepared to source out bankruptcy lawyers to deal with uh, what we thought might happen. I talked to Bruce Zoldan, the CEO of Phantom Fireworks, one of the biggest fireworks companies in the United States. February and March is when they're importing a lot of their product for sale around June and July. And the idea that all of this stuff was gummed up in March, that the global economy was collapsing, that uh, Chinese manufacturers were not producing the product, it seemed like they were in deep, deep trouble and that this could be the end of their you know, company that had been in place for 40 plus years. We took a gamble and we said, ship everything you can. Then it was like a 4th of July miracle because you have all these Americans who are cooped up and they're looking for something to do. And they're looking for, quite frankly, ways to blow off steam. Americans went out in droves and bought every firework they could get their hands on. Every store had the same reaction, an unbelievable amount of business. You know, this this year for a lot of business executives has been hard because they're trying to figure out if their company is going to survive. Some companies are finding that their companies are thriving because, you know, all these changes in consumer behavior. But it's so hard to know what that's going to mean next year. Hopefully the pandemic will be behind us. Um, hopefully so many people will be back to work. But what economy are we going to go back to? Are we going to go back to an economy where everyone's lighting off fireworks for pretty much two and a half straight months? Or are we going to go back to an economy where fireworks are launched off, you know, in like the last few days of June and early July? 
Bruce Olden doesn't know, and I think there's no way to know because this has never happened before. And this kind of hand-wringing and uncertainty that the fireworks industry is facing is happening across the whole economy. It's happening to households, families, teachers, small businesses, big businesses. No one knows what next year is going to be like. And so for a lot of them are just living in the moment and trying to you know, maximize their sales now because they don't know what's going to happen down the road. We're just going to have to wait and see and kind of enjoy the 4th of July while we're waiting. Damien Paletta is an economics editor at The Post. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We love getting to talk to people who listen to Post Reports. One way that we found to do that is our Facebook group. Right now, there is intense discussion about how excited we all are to watch the new recording of the musical Hamilton. There is talk about virtual watch parties and Hamilton-themed cocktails. It's great. If you're on Facebook, join our group at facebook.com slash groups slash postreports. And if you're not, that's cool, too. You can always email our team at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.